I can have lots of different versions of the Bible in my house, and I can, I, you know how you secretly can put some safety in that, or feel like, okay, I'm on the right track, or uh, I see in my own life how I can even put that trust in church. You don't, you don't necessarily do it on purpose, but it begins to happen in your heart where you put your safety in something even as good as this, what we have right here. But in the end, uh, there's an individual reality in our lives where who's the only one that really knows our heart? Who's the only one that really knows what's going on inside? The Bible tells us we don't even know our heart, not near to the degree that there's only one who knows, God. Do I have him? Am I in Christ? Am I growing? Uh, that's what we need. So Proverbs 3, and how we, like what uh, circumstances and what difficulties bring into our life and how there's a tendency in our hearts uh, to understand everything, to know why it's happening, what's the purpose of it. And, uh, you know, in our minds, we go through these things and we're along the way always trying to figure it out, always trying to make sense. I'm not saying that's wrong, and I don't think God says that that's wrong, that we question like that. But if uh, we need to be ready to have a heart that says, I don't understand, I don't know, but there is one thing that's really important that I do have. Faith, hope, love that I have Jesus in me, inside me, that I have a relationship with him. That's the only thing that will endure to the end, is that relationship with him. Uh, so Proverbs 3 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Um, Verse 6, or verse 7, sorry, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. And this, uh, this scripture can um, clarify for us situations, circumstances. It can warn us. It can help us along the way in that we should go to God's word for understanding. We should go to God to ask him the questions or the circumstances that are perplexing us or distressing us. God wants us to come to his word and he wants to speak to us. God wants to speak to every one of us continually through our life, through, through his word. He wants that for you. He wants that for me. And that doesn't mean there won't be difficulties or there won't be things that I enjoy. All of that is part of life. But there is a constant that God wants to speak to us through his word. Um, I listened recently to a sermon by a guy named Tim Keller. And in it, he was describing that the, a human is very complex. And a tendency in humans is, he described as reductionistic thinking, is that we like to just... Simplify things, simplify, simplify, simplify. Oh, this is exactly what this means. I found myself listening to different sermons, reading the Bible, and think, oh, now I understand that. I understand what faith is. 
but I need faith in the situation. <laughs> it's good that I understand, but I need it. I need the real thing in situations. Oh, okay, I understand what hope is. That's just the first step, but I need hope through the trial. Hope, as God defines it, means I have a confident expectation that it will turn out a certain way, and the basis of that is on who God is. That's what real hope is. It's not, uh, man, I hope the, I hope my team wins. That's just a wish. That's not what the Bible describes as hope. A hope is a confidence. So when you read people writing in here and they talk about the hope that they have, it's a confidence. It's for sure. I need, you need that hope in the midst of life. Right? So I understand it. Now I go to God and I say, God, give me that. I don't have it. I'm wavering in unbelief. I don't have the hope that it describes in here. Give it to me, Father, please. Um, and how about love? We need real love, right? We can have so many ideas of what love is, but we find, is it really there as described in God's word when, I'm, when, it's, when I see that this is, that's what should come forth here? God, I can't love my enemies. There's something in me that it, it's not, help me. Fill my heart with your love like you describe it in the Bible. Um, so along the way in that sermon that Keller was preaching, he was saying how we can encounter different problems in our life and we can, he was going through Proverbs, how we can get a wounded spirit. So things can happen to us where there's a wound that comes in on the inside and it hurts our walk with God. So there's a wound there. And he's saying a reductionist would just say, oh, have you been spending an hour in the morning with the Lord every morning? No. I'll do that. That'll solve the problem. Don't you know how we have a tendency to do that? <laughs> he said that's... Re Humans are more complex. Life is more complex. What we really need on the inside to heal our wounds is the gospel. In every situation of our life, and he mentioned, he said, do you know how hard it is to get the gospel into every area of your life? He said, do you know how long it takes a person to get the gospel into every area of their life? So I'm like, oh, it's not just enough for me to hear about the gospel and say, I understand it. I need it applied in my life to heal the wounds that I receive because of life. Maybe because of circumstance, maybe because of disappointment, maybe because somebody was mean to me. Okay, I received a hurt. What's God's remedy? He's good. The gospel. Uh, sometimes you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? I think, well, what is the guy? I hear the gospel, gospel. I hear it all the time. I hear it. Well, what is it? Listen to what John Piper uh, wrote. He said, For redeemed sinners, every good thing, indeed every bad thing that God turns for good, was obtained for us by the cross of Christ. One of the reasons we are not as Christ centered and cross saturated as we should be is that we have not realized that everything, everything good, and everything bad that God turns for the good of his children was purchased by the death of Christ for us. 
Now, do you believe that? Everything good or bad that God turns for good in our life was purchased by Jesus for us on the cross. Describing the gospel, another aspect or way to understand the gospel. We deserve wrath, condemnation, and no help at all. We don't deserve help. We don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve the gospel. He says, therefore, every breath we take, every time our heart beats, every day that the sun rises, every moment we see with our eyes or hear with our ears or speak with our mouths or walk with our legs is for now a free and undeserved gift to sinners who deserve only judgment. See how uh, that quote there is like every breath that we take, every step that we take was something purchased for us by Christ on the cross through his blood because we only deserve judgment. That's what we deserve. But God is good. But for those who see the merciful hand of God in every breath, they take and give credit where it is due. Jesus Christ will be seen and savored as the great purchaser of my every undeserved breath. Every heartbeat will be received as a gift from his hand. That gives us a little few minutes of what is the gospel. That's part of it. That's an explanation of the gospel that should make us look to God in, with gratitude and every breath I take was given to you or given to me by you from Jesus. Um, so faith, hope, and love in this complex life and the complex difficulties that we find ourselves in um, and that God is the only one that really knows us individually. That individual reality of every person sitting in here, kids, parents, there's an individual reality with you and God, with me and God. He really knows my heart. He really knows. Uh, Job was mentioned last week, so I want to look at Job's life with you a little bit. And initially you think about his life and you think, how in the world did he hang on? But he did hang on. And as I look at my life, whatever's left, and you look at whatever's left of your life, isn't that an important question? How did Job hang on? Uh, what, was, what can I learn from his life about that? Um, so in Job chapter 1, you don't have to turn there yet. We're, you could turn to Job 1.20. We'll specifically talk about that. But let's just review some things that happened there in Job's life. The Sabians attacked and took his oxen and donkeys. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And the, the one telling him said, I alone have escaped to tell you. Not long later, fire of the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up your sheep and the servants and consumed them. 
A little while goes by. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. So we know that we're familiar with the story, probably everybody. This guy who was blessed by God, who God had put a hedge around and protected him. And Satan saw that. And said, that's the reason why he loves you. And God said, okay, I'll let you into his life. And boy, did Satan come into his life and try to get him to turn against God. It says in 120, it says, And then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from this book too. This guy, I remembered reading about Job. He wrote a commentary on Job. He's Because it's hard for us to necessarily compare ourselves with Job. Probably for most of us, all ten of our people in our family are not going to die in a moment on some accident. I'm probably, I don't know, probably not going to be covered from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet with boils and sitting there scratching these boils and... Uh, maybe won't, probably won't lose all I have in one day. Maybe it will happen to some of us. But um, instead of comparing ourselves with Job and saying, well, that's never going to happen to me, and maybe it really didn't even happen. It did happen. It happened to this guy, and how did he hang on to God? Because his wife didn't, right? She said... Why, don't, why do you hold fast to your integrity? Why do you hold fast to this simplicity? Why don't you just curse God and die? Something happened in the circumstances of their life for one person, his wife, where she said, curse God and die. That could happen to me. It could happen to you. That you get so wounded, so overwhelmed, that you say, oh, this is just not worth it. Just curse God. It would be better to die. And that wasn't Job's response, even though later in the book he does say, you know, like, it would be better for me to die. And he goes through these emotions that all of us have. uh, But he shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. Mike Mason wrote, The real question is here is whether I myself, in my own unique set of circumstances, am giving glory and thanks to God from my heart? That's the real question. Because we all face suffering, right? I, uh, I was going to try to just read a few sentences from this, from this section that this guy wrote, but it's so really, really good. Uh, he said, The sudden calamities that befell Job are too numerous. Too horrible and almost too fantastic to need rehearsing. Suffice it to say that his whole world caved in overnight. He lost everything and in one final fell swoop his entire family of ten grown children was wiped out by a desert whirlwind. Moreover, thirty-six chapters of agonizing soul-searching will elapse before the Lord so much as lifts a finger to begin to comfort Job in these devastating losses. What a contrast this presents to the former security of Job's life. Few Christians are called upon to suffer the crushing spate of disasters that Job did. This is the part that 
speaks to us. But does this mean that the ordinary person going through ordinary struggles and setbacks of life cannot identify with Job? Not at all. For Job in his sufferings is essentially a figure like Christ on the cross, a person with whom all the world can identify in spite of his absolute uniqueness. We do not need to have nails driven into our hands and feet to know what the cross is. A cross is a cross. To be crushed is to be crushed. And we have all had a taste of it. Countless people have committed suicide with far less provocation than Job. And what, and what to one person seems a feather is to another a millstone. Isn't that so true? You look at something that happens like, this reminded me of yesterday, uh, uh, Lisa wasn't there, so I'm with the kids, and we got a little hoop set up in the living room, and it's a source of a lot of fun for them, but it's a source of a lot of fighting too, uh, you know. So I, part of me, like a lot of times, like, just get over it. Just get up and go. Just stop whining. That's a feather to me. But for one of the kids, sometimes it's like a millstone. Like it's crushing him. And I can think, just, you know, get into coach mode and suck it up and knock it off and get out there. You can have that kind of attitude. But to them, it's a millstone. And we can look at other people's lives. You can think, oh, you don't know what I'm going through. And you look at somebody talking about some suffering that's going through their life, and you could, that's not the love of Christ to just say, why don't you just get over it? You have no idea what I'm going through. We can do that to our wives. We can do that to our kids. He's saying a cross is a cross, right? To be crushed is to be crushed. We've all had a taste of it. And at different points in our life, a feather to one is a millstone to other, and what's a millstone to one is like a feather. And he adds this sentence, he said, Even feathers, when blown about by the devil, can stir up quite enough trouble of their own. Ah, this is good. Hang in there. <laughs> he said, he's talking about sometimes we wish, we kind of downplay what we're going through. Like, well, if I was in China, I'd really be under it. And how would I be able to handle that? He said, yet who, has one, yet who has not caught themselves wishing at times they could fight more glamorous battles than the, one, than the one they actually face? So what's a more glamorous battle? What he's saying there is if I was in a prison in China and you all were here praying for me, or I'm in the living, comfort of my living room yesterday there with my family. I'm called to be Christ in both situations, right? But there's something in our heart that wants the glamour of being in China. He said, glamour is one of Satan's great drawing cards. Yet what good? Yet what is the good of beating the devil at cancer only to lose out to a common cold? Is it not just as important to defeat him in the corner store as in the concentration camp? So, let's not excuse ourselves, you know, saying with... I can't identify with Job. We can all identify with Job. In Job 16.2, it goes on, and God gives Job room to be a human. 
16.12. We see as he goes along, uh, the circumstances, we could say, start to kind of wear on him and have an effect on him. And we have his whole life here, this part of his life written for us. He says, I was at ease, but God shattered me. God grasped me by the neck and shook me to pieces. He's also set me up as his target. Then he expresses in chapter 17, verse 1, My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. It's okay for us to express our heart to God, our humanness. I'm struggling the grave is ready for me. I, God, you took me by the neck and shook me. I wasn't expecting this to happen, God. I wasn't expecting this. And this in chapter 19. If, if you haven't turned, please turn to chapter 19 in Job. How did he hang on? Uh, as, you're, as you're there in chapter 19... In 1 Peter, don't turn there. Just let, just listen to this. Uh, Job had a reality in his life that we're going to read here that this is this is how he hung on. It says in 1 Peter chapter 10, it says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So look, in the middle of this, in chapter 19, verse 25, Job says, As for me... I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall, I shall see God. Chapter 19, verse 25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. So, uh, in Song of Songs, you don't have to turn there either, I'll... Uh, it's just one verse that describes this word redeemer. How did Job, why did Job use that word? How could he talk like that? He, uh, this is what we need. In Song of Songs, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, God is saying to his beloved, He's saying, you have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. So uh, that word, Redeemer, uh, do you know what Old Testament book I'm going to go to for the kinsman Redeemer? Anybody? Ruth. Some Job used that word that he had a redeemer in heaven, a kinsman redeemer, someone that uh, God had set 
let's look at Ruth for a second. The beginning of her journey was filled with bitterness and difficulty. And somehow, we know how, right? Here comes Boaz, this wealthy, powerful, good-looking man who took note of her. And he didn't have to. And come to find out he's the kinsman redeemer and he talks with another man and he makes a deal. I'm going to marry Ruth. I'm going to take her out of these difficult circumstances. The beginning of Ruth's story here in the Bible where there's bitterness and suffering and difficulty and everything stripped away. And then comes the kinsman redeemer and changes her life. Somehow Job knew by a work of God's Spirit that he had a Redeemer. And uh, he knew that I'm going to be saved in the end. I'm going to see God in the end because this is who God is. So old people and young people Myself, do we really believe that we make God's heart beat faster? Do we believe that with a single glance of our eyes, that we look up to God and he's happy? He, when Ruth looked at Boaz, I don't think that he just looked away and I wish you wouldn't look at me. No, no. Uh, understanding the way that God is toward us. We look up to him in our suffering or in our joy. And it's the same. He's saying, he's telling us here, it makes my heart beat faster because I love you. I'm for you. I am the only one that can, at the end of your life, deliver on all the, pro all the joy, all the promise that you read about in God's word. So as Abel shared in Hebrews, how is he running this race with endurance? He's fixing his eyes on Jesus. And that's the way God really is. He loves us so much through our circumstances. There's, I think it's somewhere here in my notes, but there's a scripture that says it's, it's uh, part of our life our privilege not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. So it's our privilege to believe in him and also to suffer for his sake. I've been really thinking about what that means. Uh, you know, when, when Paul says in chapter 8 that for his sake we are like sheep led to the slaughter, we are killed every day for his sake. And a little bit about what I'm understanding is each one of us is created by God. Right? And at the end of Job's life, he had a much better understanding of who God is and who I am as a created being. So for his sake, for his purpose, I, that's why you and I have been made, for God's purpose. For his sake. Everything that happens in our life is for his sake. Now, as Mike was sharing, where does, it, where does it come to where 
I don't end up like Job's wife who says, why don't you just curse God and die? She was going through the same circumstances that Job was going through. Why did she say that? And why did Job hang on? Because he saw uh, he saw God in a right way. And at the end of the book of Job, remember Job corrects Job's friends. He, he gives a correction on all that was being said. He said, they haven't spoken right about me. He says that twice in the last chapter. I'm not happy with your friends because they haven't spoken right about me. They haven't spoken right about who I am. Uh, And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, if you could turn there. Romans chapter 8. What was it about Paul's life? What can I learn from Paul's life that really matters? Um, uh, Romans 8.18. I want to look at just three verses in Romans 8 here that tell us about Paul and how he saw God and what was really in his heart. Verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For I consider. Paul really believes. His faith and belief was such that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. You know how you want to compare your sufferings with the reward that's going to be there? Paul's saying the the reward is so great, heaven is so great, that whatever I'm going through is not even worthy to be compared. Somehow his eyes were open to to believe and see the promise of God is heaven, is that one day I'm going to be just like Jesus. Everything that's happening in my life is for his sake. You kind of glance over to verse 36. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long for God's sake. Because I'm, I'm a creation of God. It's for his sake that everything is happening and he wants it to be good. He wants you to respond like Job. He wants me to respond like Job and not like his wife. Uh, So Paul, considering that and believing that, was a real strength in his spirit in everything that he went through. Uh, Let's look at verse 28, 828, a familiar verse, right? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. So when do things that are written in the Bible like that, that we like to put, you know, up like this up in our house, that it's not bad. It's not bad if we do that. It's not bad if we read the Bible on our cell phone. It's not the important thing. But when do I find out if I believe that all things work together for good? When things don't go good. When things in my mind go bad. Or maybe they really are bad. Um... Jonathan Edwards was uh, a Puritan, 
uh, back on the East Coast way back, right? That was in the middle of a great revival. And this quote that I read about him uh, was a good description of this verse was not just on his wall. And I, I really want in today, what I say today, like maybe it is something on the wall. Maybe I find out it is just something on the wall for me. And when I do go through something hard, I don't find this verse coming true. In my, that's a, okay, then go to God. Dad I, Dad, I need help. I see that it's just something on a wall for me. I want it to be more. I want it to be exactly how it's written in here. Um, so Jonathan Edwards, uh, this man was writing an article about him. He said, Let's, let us go to perhaps the lowest moment of Edwards' pastoral life, when his church fired him as pastor. David Hall was a member of the council that met to determine Edwards' fate in the communion controversy. And this was Hall's testimony. So this man was on the council to, to get rid of Jonathan Edwards. And he writes, this is, uh, when I went to see Jonathan, this is what I saw. He said, Edwards received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance. The whole week, but he appeared like a man of God, whose happiness was out of reach of his enemies, and whose treasure was not only a future, but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismission. He's saying there were people there who wouldn't be in rest, at rest until he was gone, and this is... That doesn't condemn you, does it? Doesn't it inspire you that Jonathan Edwards is just like me and you? And yeah, somehow he got that strength from God and believed that even this real difficulty would turn out to be his good, not only a future, but a present good in his life. Um, In Philippians chapter 1, Again, staying with Paul a little bit longer. Uh, these verses about Paul. Um, he says in chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Being thrown in prison. He's saying, I want you to know, you remember uh, two weeks ago, Phil was preaching in this phrase, the golden calf of circumstances. Probably maybe thought about that a few times since then. You know how the circumstances of our life can be a golden calf. And God needs to crush it. Uh, No matter how badly it hurts us, we can set up circumstances and things uh, where he finds us leaning on our own understanding. And in his mercy and love, he crushes it because he wants us to lean on him. Proverbs 3 said, don't lean on your understanding. And you and me alike have a tendency to lean on our understanding, to lean on uh, anything that we lean on will fall over and crumble, right? Um, 
And Paul says here, I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And he says later in verse 17, 18, in the end of verse 18, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we find two important things that Paul sees there in in all of our lives. Our prayers for one another. He's saying, I'm going to be able to get through this. I know this is going to be for the good of my salvation because of your prayers and because of what else? The provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's what we really need in our hearts the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And then finally with Paul in chapter 8, he says in 18, I consider these sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory. And verse 28, and we know all things work together for good. And verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says there, I am convinced, faith, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And lastly, looking at what really matters in our heart, faith, hope, and love in the life of Peter, In John 21, if you'll turn there, we look at Peter for a few minutes. Peter had many failures. Um, But he says, this exchange with Peter in John 21, verse 15, Jesus keeps asking him, do you love me? And if you love me, then shepherd my sheep and tend my lambs. And Jesus is telling him, if you love me, then you're going to love others and you're going to help others. Right? And in 1 Peter 4.10, to help us, like how do I identify with what God is saying to Peter right there? 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Jesus was saying to him, do you love me? And I think somebody shared, it's a little different word that Peter said, and Peter saying, yes, Lord, you know I like you a lot. And then he asked him, do you love me? And yes. And finally he says, Lord, you know. You're the only one that knows really deep in my heart what's there. You know I love you. And we have to know, we've heard many times, we have to know and keep telling ourselves. That's why Jerry Bridges, I shared way back when I was first started sharing, is to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to be reminded how much God loves us. Every day. Do you love me? 
yes, Lord, you know how much I love you. It's not like the love that you love me with, but you know I love you. Okay, then serve others. And there's no pressure on anyone here to, to exercise the gifts that God's given you, right? But we can read in 1 Peter 4 there where it says everybody has been given a gift. Every single person, every one of our kids, everybody sitting in here, there's, there's a way that God has gifted you that we can be sit there just like Peter and say, I, you know, Lord. And at the end of that exchange with him, or in the middle, he said, what was his advice? He says, okay, follow me. Um, and I wondered how many times in the struggles that Peter had in his life after that point, how many times he remembered that question that Jesus put to him, do you love me? And how many times that helped him to make the right decision? And then he comes to another decision, do you love me? And David Pawson writing about this said, Jesus didn't say to Peter, I rather hoped you'd be the first pastor, but I'm afraid you now, now you'll just have to give out the hymn books. Nor did he say, I'm going to put you on probation for a year to see if you've pulled your socks up, and after a year we'll review your case and reconsider your position. He actually, Jesus actually said, Peter, I can cope with you, provided I'm sure of one thing. Do you love me? So God says the same thing to us. Uh, just insert your name there. Reese, I can cope with you. You ever think God can't cope with you? You just feel sorry for yourself and you really love yourself so much that you, oh, God doesn't, you know. I think Pawson is right where he says, Peter, I, God says, I can cope with you, provided I'm sure of one thing. Do you love me? So all those things that are in our life that are maybe helps to us in our walk with God, the really, really, really important thing is when Jesus asks, do you love me? Pawson writes, that's the most important thing for any believer. Do you love him? Jesus asked Peter the same question three times, and somehow that put Peter back on track. Because in that exchange there, they're sitting down on the coastline, eating fish, eating breakfast with Jesus. He says, or Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during supper, and he said, Lord, who is it is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, speaking of John. Yet Jesus did not say to Peter that he was not to die or to John. He said, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Well, just prior to that, Jesus had said, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to. Isn't that such a perfect description of life in one sentence? <laughs> Kids, don't you dress yourselves usually and go wherever you want to go? Yes, you do. I mean, mom and dad help you and there's rules and all that, right? But when you're little, you just dress yourself and you go wherever you want to go. Isn't that an incredible statement? <laughs> That is a perfect description. 
Jesus knows. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. Someone will take you where you don't want to go, Peter, when you're older. You're going to be surprised by things that you wouldn't necessarily choose the circumstances that are that I've set for you to go through. Somebody else is going to dress you. And then they're going to take you somewhere where you don't. He was telling him about the way he was going to die. And man, how did Peter make it? He had a sense, or maybe he knew exactly what that meant. Like, this is what's going to happen to me. Um, so I'd encourage you, I'm going to wrap up, but I'd encourage you to read in First Peter. Reading through that gives you a good understanding of Peter was writing to persecuted, suffering other believers And he was writing a letter to them like, this is how you get through it. This is how I got through it. I failed the Lord. I denied the Lord. I saw him. He spoke to me often. And I'm going to write you a letter exactly what you need to help you get through the sufferings you're going through. In 1 Peter, he says, one of the things that should be in our life He says, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, if we just stop there, it can become such a Bible over the head statement, you know, like hitting you over the head with a Bible, like read your, you should, you should long for the pure milk of the word. You should love, you should. But the little phrase, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is one way that I tasted the kindness of the Lord in the last week, where it says in Mark 9.23, you don't have to turn there, it says, here was a man, um, they brought to a boy to Jesus, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsions, and he fell to the ground and began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. So put yourself in that dad's shoes. He's saying, this has been happening ever since he was a little kid. I have no control over it. It just comes on him and it has total control of him. And I can't do anything. And it's not like it's been happening for a month or a week. It's been happening since since childhood. So many years. And you can imagine a dad before this time... Like struggling through, like you want to help your child. I want to help him. I want to, I can't. I have no control. This thing is so strong. I have no power over this. But here comes the kinsman redeemer, the one who can set things right, the one who can restore me to a place of where he, into the rightness of what he wants in my life. And it has often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, Jesus, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can? Question mark. So he, that's the kindness that God will speak to us through his word. If I can? Are, you don't, 
I mean, I understand what you've gone through, Dad, but you're at, if I can help you, I can help you. I'm the only one that can help you, and I'm here. I, I'm going to help you. That's the kindness of the Lord. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. So there, in those words from the father, I also saw the kindness of the Lord. Reese, you have unbelief in your life. It doesn't mean that I won't help you. Just come to me and admit it. Just talk to me. Just confess. Lord, I've got unbelief. Help me. Help my unbelief. I do believe you to a certain degree. I do believe you in this. But here's my son who's been possessed by a demon since he was a little kid. This is the strongest, most difficult thing in my life. Uh, Help my unbelief. And Jesus did. It's wonderful. And lastly, a a warning from uh, Pilgrim's Progress. So faith, hope, and love, is that in our heart? There's a man in Pilgrim's Progress named Hopeless. And Pilgrim comes to him and said, have you always been like this? Uh, Christian said, what happened to him? And the interpreter said, let him tell you. Hopeless said, I'm certainly not what I was. Christian saw a man with a gloomy countenance in an iron cage whose name was Hopeless. He sat with his hands folded, his eyes looking down, and he sighed as if his heart would break. Christian said, what are you? Hopeless says, I was once a happy professing Christian, both in my own way of thinking and in the eyes of others. I felt I was fit for the celestial city, and I look forward to entering that place with great joy. Christian says, I see, but what are you now? Hopeless says, I'm now a man of despair, rejected, abandoned, shut up in this iron cage from which there is no escape. Christian asks, how did you get in that condition? Hopeless replies, I ceased to watch and be sober. Remember when Mike posed the questions to us, like, what is my part? Like, am I just supposed to sit and let the circumstances of life batter me and beat me up until there's no hope in my heart? Hopeless said, I ceased to watch and be sober. I allowed myself to doubt the word of life and gave way to my passions. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I yielded to Satan's arguments and he took possession of my soul. I have now provoked God to anger and he's left me. I have grieved the spirit and he's gone. I have hardened my heart and now I cannot repent. Let's pray. Father, we pray for a heart that you put in us that trusts and is able to see your goodness through all uh, all of our lives. You're able to keep us till the very end. Help us to watch and be sober and not uh, give way to lies and thoughts that go against your word and who you are. Help each one of us to understand who you really are and how you really are and to delight in it, uh, to enjoy who you are and to receive strength today and for the coming week to face the trials and temptations that we'll face. 
Keep us from temptation and keep us from the evil one as we go along. And I pray that each of our lives would bring glory to you, would bring honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.